It is a beautiful day to be alive, and I'm so glad we have this time together. I'm Sana Layborn, she, her. I'm a professor, scholar, connector, and avid reader. I've always loved learning about what's happening in our social world and sharing that knowledge, especially over a good cup of coffee. And so here we are. Each week on Let's Grab Coffee, I catch up with experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. Go ahead and grab that cup of coffee and get ready for an engaging and insightful conversation. According to the United Nations Convention of the Rights of the Child, everyone has the right to identity, the right to know one's history and origins, including children adopted transnationally out of a war. But how does one begin to know their history and origins? What links would you go to to uncover the truths of your past? And how would you keep the hope of finding your family after separation by war, adoption, and immigration? These questions of identity, displacement, reunion, and care motivate the men, women, children, activists, and survivors in Dr. Elizabeth Barnard's book, Reunion, Finding the Disappeared Children of El Salvador. Dr. Elizabeth Barnard is a pediatrician and associate professor of pediatrics at the University of California, Los Angeles. Her research, grounded in human rights and social action, examines children affected by violence, family separation, and incarceration. Dr. Barnard has numerous publications in top-tier journals, including in Science, Pediatrics, and American Journal of Public Health. She has presented her work at the National Academies of Sciences, national and international research meetings, and through the mainstream news media, including via the Associated Press, National Public Radio, and PBS NewsHour. Dr. Barnard has advised the U.S. Congress and California Legislature, Governor, and Health and Human Services Agency on youth justice policy. She also serves on the board of the National Commission on Correctional Health Care and on the NCHC's Juvenile Health Committee and Structural Racism Committee. She also serves on the advisory board of Human Rights for Kids, a nonprofit dedicated to promoting children's rights in the United States. She co-leads the Reimagining Children's Rights Initiative, a national network to advance the child rights in the U.S. and the Youth Justice Node of the Life Course Intervention Research Network. Dr. Barnard is a founding board member of DNA Bridge, a nonprofit that seeks to promote a humanitarian approach to use of DNA for family reunification of children separated by war, disasters, or inhumane immigration policies. In Reunion, Finding the Disappeared Children of El Salvador, Dr. Barnard examines separation and reunification experiences of families torn apart in the 1980s Salvadoran Civil War, who later were reunited through a DNA bank she helped develop in partnership with the Salvadoran human rights organization ProBusqueda. Reunion, Finding the Disappeared Children of El Salvador is available wherever you buy books. Good morning, Liz. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's an honor to be here. It is an absolute honor of mine to have you here. I've read your amazing book, Reunion, Finding the Disappeared Children of El Salvador. And I'll be honest, I don't know what I expected when I started reading this book. Um, I mean, I, I, I loosely knew what the book was about, um, but I had no clue what to expect in its pages. And I just have to say the way that you have shared these stories of, of displacement, of these disappeared children, of reunion and of war, um, is so compelling. Um, 
I I strongly hope that everyone reads your book because it's so important. Um, you're able to talk about some very difficult realities, um, but to do so in a way that like I, I cried so many times. I cried so many times while reading the book, but it also made me want to get involved. And I think that's also very, very key. Um, so I absolutely, you know, thank you so much for all of your work and we'll get more into the work that you've done. Uh, but thank you so much for writing this book so beautifully so that people who have no idea about the Salvadoran Civil War, for example, or about adoption or about the process of reunification can understand it um, in, you know, a very human to human way. Thank you. Um, you know, the the irony of it is you you make it sound like what I did was very complicated, but it was actually very simple. Mm-hmm. I was a graduate student um, in El Salvador collecting DNA samples to build this DNA bank with ProBusqueda, the organization that you mentioned. And people told me their stories. And and like you're alluding to, their stories were so powerful. Mm-hmm. And so I was just writing them down. And I, as I was hearing them, um, not as I was hearing them, kind of, you know, when mm-hmm. I would get back to a computer, I would write them because they just seemed important. It was also how I myself was processing them. And that's what the book is. It's it's really just me editing my field notes from my time in El Salvador. Mm. See, you make it sound like it was just so simple. <laughs> <laughs> but it was. Uh, But I think part of it is, like you said, people wanted to tell you their stories. You know, I think that is a very human need for us to tell our stories, to have someone listen and to make it into the historical record, which is also part of what this book is doing um, as part of a a much broader movement, right, to bring truth and awareness to what happened during the Civil War. Um, But saying like, we were here, we experienced this, this was very real. And these are the ramifications of, in this case, this civil war that lasted um, over a decade, if I'm not mistaken, on the on the time frame. Um, and I'm wondering first, could you tell us a little bit for our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about the civil war itself? And that I think will help us understand a little bit more about um, these families and, and your work with the DNA Bank. Sure. And um, to clarify, I'm I'm a pediatrician, as you said. I'm not a Latin American studies expert. I'm I'm somebody who is passionate about human rights and social justice. Um, but my understanding of the war is that it, it occurred from 1980 to 1992. Mm-hmm. El Salvador um, had a lot of socioeconomic disparities that had really worsened, um, starting with throughout colonialism. So indigenous families and indigenous identity kind of got wiped away. There was a huge massacre of indigenous people in 1932. Um, and it, the El Salvador's history is very much connected with the United States and United States imperialism. So the massacre in 1932 was related to the Great Depression and the crash mm-hmm. of coffee prices. Um, and then what happened in El Salvador in the 1980s, it was really because of the U.S.'s um, fears around the Cold War and mm-hmm. this concern that capitalism might take root in, in Central America. And so what happened was you had rural people in rural areas and also in urban areas that were just increasingly squeezed and really trying to advocate for basic rights for a livable wage. Um, not for luxury. Um, and 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 then people gradually began to organize. In 1980, the Archbishop of El Salvador at the time, um, Oscar Romero, who has since been decreed a saint by the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. 
was assassinated while giving mass. He was begging people, begging soldiers not to kill in the name of the bloodshed of the military that was running the country at the time. Um, and that was the moment that that is marked in history as igniting the Civil War. And so the Civil War was between the Salvadoran military, um, which was heavily funded and trained by the United States, um, and then the FMLN, or um, Faribundo Martí Liberación Nacional, which was um, revolutionary forces. And um, one of the huge travesties of the war is, is really the civilians, the mm -hmm. women, the children, the young men got caught in between because anyone in the countryside who was living in an area where there was revolutionary activity was themselves labeled a rebel or a guerrilla sympathizer and was mm -hmm. targeted for execution. Mm -hmm. wow. And then the war finally ended in 1992, um, in part because the international community spoke out um, with some media attention about the um, grotesque human rights violations that were occurring. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for just that bit of context. I think it's important because, you know, one in the U.S., we have, you know, this Con continual forgetting of what we have done around the world. Um, and so I think that's important to know, and particularly because in the book, you're talking about these disappeared children. And so what's on the other side of that, we might think about transnational adoption, which is framed in a very humanitarian way. Um, but I think it's important to understand why these quote unquote humanitarian efforts have to exist in the first place. Um, and so I think that is really important context. Um, I think it's also important to note that when we think about international adoption, it is very much has always been connected to U.S. militarism abroad. And so as a Korean adoptee, you know, we can trace the histories of Korean adoption to Korean War to U.S. involvement as well. And so I, I really appreciate that in your book, you give us this grounding and you give us the opportunity to challenge our own beliefs about what we think about humanitarianism in the form of adoption, but also the U.S.'s own um, responsibility for what's happening around the globe. Um, so thank you so much for, for giving us that context for our conversation today. Absolutely. I think it's really the starting point for, I don't want to use that term that our former president used, but for mm -hmm. understanding why families might feel the need to immigrate, might feel the need to separate, or why families were torn apart for these, you know, as you said, humanitarian adoptions. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now you talk about, of course, the focus is on these disappeared children in the wake of the civil war. And I thought it was so sad, you know, when reading your book about how the, the government refuses to even acknowledge that these children have been disappeared. Um, and I think in the book, you talk about an estimated 10,000 children um, that, you know, refusal of the Salvadoran government to even acknowledge that this happened and, and that these disappeared children do exist somewhere, right? Um, and so 10,000 children, and I know with the with the organization that you're working with, of course, the goal is to help reunite um, these families. Could you talk a little bit about your work? And I know it started just as a, a graduate student, just doing something simple as collecting DNA, but could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So 
Pro Buscada, like you said, it's it's the mission is to find the disappeared children and to give young people the opportunity to reunite. So I want to make sure that we talk about that, that aspect of the, the young people's agency mm-hmm. um, in that. Um, but the organization was founded by a Jesuit priest, Father John Cortina, um, who was actually a mentee of St. Oscar Romero and and by mothers of the disappeared children who had watched their children taken away by the military during the war. Um, and so they, for many years, were working to find the children. And then I became involved through UC Berkeley Human Rights Center and through Physicians for Human Rights to build a DNA bank um, to, and the, to reunify the families, both through verification of identifications that had been made by tracing adoption records and gathering witness testimonies. And also um, by just putting everything together in a database and seeing what matches can be made. So one of the most beautiful moments for me of writing this book, because it's, you know, it's, I'm writing about work I did 15 years ago. If Mm -hmm. you look at the back cover of the book, there's a uh, a man, he's about 30 something years old and he's hugging a mother. And this photo was sent to me as I was finishing the book, actually the oh, wow. day that I was about <laughs> to submit the photos. And they're like, here's a good one. I was like, wait, this is a great picture. And now I have to redo my the photo count. But it's a picture of a young man who grew mm-hmm. up in Australia and was reunited with his biological mother through a cold hit match in the DNA wow. bank. That means that there were no leads about wh- where he was. And Without mm-hmm. the DNA bank, they never would have been put, you know, had the opportunity to meet again. So that's mm-hmm. what we were doing. And as you said, the other part of Probusqueda's work is they call it the Memoria Viva, the living memory, or this kind of historical accountability, the celebration and supporting of the survivors and, and doing what they can to bring courts to the inter American to bring um cases to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights or to to bring um justice really to the human rights violations of the war. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, I think it is is so great that the mothers, right, of these disappeared children um, with the help, right, uh, of the church were able to start this whole movement. Um, I was recently talking with a, a girlfriend of mine and she was like, well, why isn't there just like a, a DNA kind of like ancestry.com, right, for Korean adoptees, right? Because I am a Korean adoptee. And she was like, you know, how can you find your family? Or what if you have siblings? Um, you know, like, why isn't there just DNA, <laughs> some sort of organized DNA database? And that is what you all were able to do. And I think it just shows the power of of family and of keeping hope, right, and keeping that hope for for many years, in in wanting to find, um, find find their children and find other family members, and that even gives me a, a lot of hope as well as an, an international adoptee. And and one of the quotes that really stuck out to me from your book is is this quote that says they persevere in a battle of hope, and you've really shown that through the pages of your book, so much hope, but also a lot of, of desperation sometimes and, and and disappointment and sadness as well. Um, but I love that piece that you said about giving um, disappeared children or giving these adopted children the agency to decide, you know, how do I want to pursue this relationship if I want to pursue a relationship? Um, and then how do I want to move forward? And I also found that um, in the book, um, 
I loved how you had all of these different stories and voices, both of the family members in El Salvador, but also um, the disappeared children um, in, in really tracing the different reactions to knowing that you have family. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of maybe some of the different kind of themes among um, the disappeared children, but also the families that you encountered. Yeah, so that's a, a really great question. And I suspect that there's a lot of universality um, mm -hmm. to what I observed in El Salvador to children who are adopted in other countries from other countries and in other circumstances. So and I think it relates to the fundamental nature of the parent-child bond. Um so the themes, the separation was incredibly difficult and painful. Mm -hmm. And the, the children were surviving in war. The families were describing, surviving in war. And I think this is best understood through the concept of ambiguous loss, the, the intense pain of the uncertainty of not knowing if your loved one is alive or dead and mm -hmm. if you are ever going to see them again. And so that is also part of the battle of hope that mothers feel like they can't grieve because if mm. they grieve, they're giving up hope. Um, but then if they grieve, which can be a healthy thing to do, um, you know, they're blocked from that healing process. And so that that is really the role of DNA or of an organization like ProBuscheta is to have that moment where there's that identification, then that restores choice. Like mm. as Father John said, the mission of ProBuscheta is to give the young children the opportunity to reunite. And I, and I believe what I saw is that that's really when the healing begins. Mm -hmm. Then as you're saying, people responded in, in different ways and it was all very understandable. Um, I think another main theme is that reunion. Wow. That is yeah. an intense event. They are so joyful. They are, it's such a privilege to be at a reunion. I'm getting tingles all over my body. Like I, I, not even a wedding. I don't think I've ever been part of a more powerful moment. And I've, mm -hmm. you know, been in, at many births and, and delivered two babies. Um, but that moment of coming together, the mo mother-child embrace, and it tends to play out in a very similar way. Um, and the moment of reunion also reverse the the trauma of the separation so it's a mm -hmm. beautiful moment but it's also a very painful moment and so um what comes after that something i learned is that families absolutely deserve and need support in mm -hmm. what is probably a lifelong process of reintegration how are these new relationships going to work together so this is very relevant when we think about all of the migrant children at our border and the children that mm -hmm. the trump administration tore apart and the efforts of the biden administration family reunification task force what does it mean to support families in reunification and that is another aspect of what probuscada does and i learned a lot mm -hmm. from them they have a psychologist on site they're going to the countryside and they just give free support to the families and do workshops to help people heal. Um, and, and like you said, people respond differently. So I kind of think about that concept um, as that reunion, reunification operates on a continuum. Mm. So for some people, just knowing that that other person survived and they have the choice is enough. It's and then with transnational adoption, it gets very complicated, not just because you have a cultural difference and a language difference, but half of people in El Salvador live in poverty. 
Um, and so those dynamics are quite challenging for transnational adoptees, um, particularly for ones who are in uh, you know, developed or more affluent countries, which is where most of them like Angela were. Um, and other people will actually choose to have an in-person reunion like Angela did. And mm -hmm. very, very few actually relocated um, mm -hmm. to, to actually be in the same household or to be near their biological parents. So we see a range of responses. It all makes a lot of sense. It relates to the trauma of separation and the healing that can begin when that ambiguous loss is resolved. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I wanted to say when you were mentioning um, the um, young people that were adopted out of Korea and that there's not a DNA bank, that is something that can be done. It's a great idea. It's very doable. And, and you're absolutely right. It's because of the heroes at Probuscada that this work happened in El Salvador. Mm -hmm. um, one of the um, aspects of my work that continues on now is that we founded a nonprofit based in the United States called DNA Bridge. And mm -hmm. the role of, of DNA Bridge is to promote the humanitarian use of DNA. Mm -hmm. So through my work with Probuscada, I've come to understand that importance of, of allowing the opportunity for reunion and the way that DNA can be used safely um, securely and in a way that is trauma informed and, and supports people's rights. Um, mm. and, and so it, I've come to understand that we, ex we have the technological means. It's actually cheap and easy to run a DNA test. There's rapid DNA machines that are the size of a printer nowadays. Mm. Um, we live in a world where there never again needs to be a lost child. Mm. So, um, we don't need to have children needlessly separated because they don't know where their parents are. However, there's a lot that needs to be kind of worked out to use DNA with the proper safeguards. Um, so yes, this can be done for prior separations in Korea, but one of the things that we DNA Bridge is talking about are the new separations that are happening in the Ukraine and this concern about it being a tactic, a tactic of war that Russia is removing children from Ukraine and, and putting them in Russia. We're not seeing much media attention on this. There was a New York Times article published on it, but these same patterns are repeating. Mm -hmm. um, and this historical moment in El Salvador is so important because it relates so much to these issues that we see with immigration, with gang violence, um, and as you said, with the U.S. imperialism that hasn't stopped. And in many respects, it's actually worsened. Um, mm. And I don't want to make people upset, but <laughs> if you look at the trajectory, it's likely that, that separations will increase. Um, mm -hmm. as climate change worsens and there's more political strife and, and resource scarcity. So we can solve these. I think human mm -hmm. rights is a very important tool. I think DNA is a very important tool. I think media and what you're doing and speaking out is a very important tool. But the lessons that I learned from the, the disappeared children in El Salvador are very relevant to today. In fact, I would have it loved to have not written this book because it yeah. was hard. And as we were saying before you hit the record button, I cried many times, but it, it transmits a power and a resilience mm -hmm. that is so important. But there is resounding lessons that I really hope people learn because I think it, it, we need to use them to inform our present day and our future.
Mm -hmm. Yes. So, so many lessons um, because unfortunately history continues to repeat itself um, over and over and over and over again. Um, Let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and you're here on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee, and I'm joined today by Elizabeth Barnard, the author of Reunion, Finding the Disappeared Children of El Salvador. And before the break, Liz, you were giving us just this this great overview of all of the connections of your book um, to present day, unfortunately, present day continued experiences of forced displacement, forced separation, um, and also how different countries are, are, are really you know, unfortunately, leveraging um, separation of children and families in order to advance, um, in many cases, a, a very um, harmful political agendas. And one thing that I really appreciated about your book was really laying out, okay, these were the actions taken by the government, both in El Salvador, but also the U.S. government that really facilitated all of these atrocities. And the other piece that I I really appreciated was, as you're explaining before the break, was how just a small group of very dedicated human beings were able to come together and, and create this organization um, that has led to the, the reunion or at least the matching of oh, close to 500 um, families. And so that is definitely a cause, a cause for hope, um, but also I think a model for many, unfortunately, many other countries where we do see the separation of children and families. Absolutely. My, so my colleagues at Probuscada, they are amazing. And some of them are still there. And I'm glad that I had field notes, but I could still call them up, you know, as recently as three months ago, doing final proofs of the book. Hey, do you remember this case? Oh, yeah. Da, 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 da. They remember everything. They're so dedicated. Mm-hmm. Um, many there, many of them are the relatives of the disappeared or the disappeared children themselves. And so this for them, they're they're fighting for their family and for their own identity. But mm-hmm. absolutely, Pro Buscara, um gives so much hope. I'm honored to have gotten the chance to work so closely with them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, all of these stories, the way that you are able to to weave these stories together, um, they are definitely, you know, seared in my mind as well. So I could only imagine for folks who are on the ground, right, interviewing people, taking those DNA samples, um, how much more they remember both all the, the the times when people are able to reunite, but also the times that people, you know, that they can't or they don't want to, as you mentioned. Um, the, the great thing about the work with Probuscada is that, again, that that option, that opportunity um, to reconnect. Um, but also I think just the the peace and the you know resolution in, in some sense of, of knowing that your family is is alive and well or or even if they're no longer here, still some sense of knowing, which I think is a great gift to have as well. Absolutely. I I, I completely agree. Yes. Now, something that I thought was interesting that you kind of touched on um, before the break was talking about the the humanitarian use of of DNA. Um, and what I what 
came up in the book was folks' hesitancy, right? For many very well-founded reasons, hesitancy for for giving their DNA, even though they very much wanted to, you know, try to find their relatives. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the ways that we can use DNA in um, a more ethical way, in a humanitarian way, and also maybe even some of the reasons why folks who were very hesitant um, ultimately decided like, okay, I will give this DNA sample? Sure. So I think that the barriers to the DNA that I talk about in reunion, they they really had to do with um, some of it was cultural and mm-hmm. it was really about trust. Um, one of the barriers that we heard was the elderly relatives were afraid that the collection of the DNA sample, which was a little, basically like a cotton swab that we'd scrape on the inside of their cheek would cause their teeth to fall out, which was founded. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, it was a reasonable concern. Um, so I think that um, families had also, as I said, we're stuck in the middle during this war, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it was um, at risk of death to mm-hmm. to side with the system, both sides. It was dangerous, right. um, even though in many instances the FMLN was protecting the civilians. So there there was fear and mistrust, and it was really through the reputation of Probuskera that families were able to give their DNA sample. And once they understood that it would either help them find their missing relative or or maybe help in a, a judicial process, um, then, then families felt like um, giving the, the sample. What was interesting also were the reflections for um, for people who, you know, had already been matched and were very mm-hmm. confident in their match. So one of them was the daughter of the founder. Um, so the daughter's Elsie in the book. And mm-hmm. she was talked about that she was having political conflicts with her, her mother. Right. She had grown up in an orphanage and then um, got married as a way to get out of the orphanage and had uh, her in-laws were very conservative and her mother was you know, very much um, on the other political side. And she said, but once I got that DNA result, DNA doesn't lie. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the the there were barriers, but it, the DNA also helped people build trust. Mm-hmm. I think the, the type of barriers that we talk about on a macro level, so when we're talking about the humanitarian use of DNA now, the, the DNA bridge, what, what the academics, we've talked to the Biden administration, we've talked to the United Nations, and, and people are afraid of data security. Mm-hmm. There's fears that, um, for example, if, if DNA is used in the context of migration, that the government could subpoena the DNA data and that that could lead to deportation. Mm-hmm. And so some of the barriers, the mistrust around DNA really just involves education and helping people understand, for example, that the DNA, um, the segments of the DNA that are used for identification purposes don't give information like, does this person have asthma or anything mm-hmm. that could be, you know, play along the lines of eugenics. Mm-hmm. Um, however, these other barriers of concern for confidentiality of the data are very important. And so there is a way to overcome it, but it, you have to do it carefully. So we published an article in Science that proposed a framework for using DNA to support of reunification of the migrant families that were separated by the Trump administration. And it involves um, in the, the use of a third, the involvement of a third party, um, such as the International Commissions of Missing Persons, which is an 
intergovernmental organization. So it has treaty level protections that would protect mm. the security of the DNA. So there's ways to do it. And mm. we've come to the conclusion that it's actually a human rights violation to not do it because you're mm. violating people's right to identity if you don't avail of that opportunity to reconnect them. But mm. you do have to do it with the proper safeguards using these treaty level protections with lawyers, et cetera, to, to figure it out. But it's it, um, Politically, the government should not be afraid of it, but the government also should not control the DNA database. The other key is to use mm -hmm. a database strategy. So you're not doing one-to-one -one testing, but like Probuscada, you have a DNA bank that has everyone's data and their identities are separate from the DNA profiles. Mm, so it's doable. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you so much for that because I think you know, for all of us, we probably have some hesitancy around just handing our DNA over, um, even if if we think that it can help lead to, you know, some, some great outcomes and some beneficial outcomes. Um, I think there is kind of a healthy level of, of hesitancy around like, okay, wait a minute, what is my information actually going to be used for? So thank you so much for even giving us that kind of overview of how this might work and also of understanding the safeguards that are in place. Um, because even, you know, in the context of, of your, your work in reunion in your book, you know, you write so eloquently about the the hesitancies that people feel um, and kind of that push and pull of like, yes, I do want to potentially find uh, my family members, but also I'm very concerned, um, you know, for my health or for my even my spiritual well-being um, or, you know, just these other instances of like, wait a minute, what am I what am I really doing here? So thank you so much um, for that. I think the other thing that really stood out for me in your book is how you really were able to show us the, the various ways that the disappeared children were feeling about potentially reuniting. So maybe they have a match and, and that, you know, that's one step and that feels very healing on many levels, but then trying to decide, okay, do I want to actually reconnect with people who maybe I still have very vivid memories of, or I have some, you know, some sense of anger, right. Or even disappointment or confusion around, um, but even questioning, you know, what does this mean for me to have, you know, multiple families as well? And so I really appreciated you giving us a range of, of folks' reactions um, and a range of even kind of what happened post-reunion as well, because I think we often don't understand that it's not simply, oh, you you found some family and yay, everyone lives happily ever after, but there are a lot of different outcomes um, that happen, you know, throughout the years as well. Yeah, and absolutely. And the role of the adoptive family is is very important. So some adoptive families were fearful mm -hmm. and and they didn't want to support the reunification process. Other adoptive families like Angela, who's portrayed in the book, ha were incredibly supported. To, um, as, mm -hmm. as her father is quoted, no one can ever have too much love, yes. which is one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. And I, I really admire that Angela shared her story and invited PBS NewsHour to mm -hmm. come with us on her family reunion. And I think it's because Angela intuitively and intellectually knew that she was coming from a very supportive adoptive mm. family. And she's also a very strong and generous person. Um, and so she wanted to offer the support that she had to other people who might be experiencing that range of emotions, but, but having less support. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, I was so moved by by Angela's father's words as well, particularly in the context in, in which he offers up, you know, up, off, offers up, there we go, this quote, um, because I think, you know, for different journalists and you talk about some of the, the journalists questions, often insensitive or, or, or just relying upon some stereotypes and tropes around family, um, particularly adoptive family or biological family. Um, and so for her father to say that, that really warmed my heart, um, particularly as an adoptee as well, who, you know, experiences many of the, the feelings that are, are, are portrayed in, in your book um, and to have her dad, you know, give her that support um, just really, really warmed my heart because it's not always, as you mentioned, there's not always support. And in fact, some of the people um, that you have vignettes of in the book, their adopted family um, are very much opposed to, to meeting um, and having, you know, the children meet as well. Yeah. So it's, it's like we said, it operates on a continuum and it's um, on the one hand, it's, it's very universal and I think uh, essential to kind of human nature. And on the other hand, it is nuanced and complex. Mm-hmm. And, and just the way that you've really drawn out all those complexities and nuances, that's something I really loved about the book, right? I think a, a really good book gives you the opportunity to question what you know and question what you believe, but also help you feel something. And your book does all of this so beautifully. Um, the other piece that that really stood out to me as I was reading this, just that reminder that Adoption is not this straightforward process of you have, you know, benevolent people on on throughout the entire process that are, are completely operating uh, with the with the best intentions. Because as you talk about in the book, in so many of of these instances, you have deception, you have, you know, manipulation, you have um, biological families thinking that they're making the best decision um, for their children or that their children will be returned to them. And these are, this is what they're being told um, in certain cases by lawyers and all of that is, is false. And, you know, how are they to know? Right. And then also just thinking on, on the other end, other end, you know, oftentimes how are adoptive parents supposed to know, right? They're thinking they're going through this legal process. Um, And so I appreciated you even including those details because I think it's important for us um, to know that, you know, to question, right, some of these policies and practices. Um, But I think it's also helpful as we think about so many of the humanitarian crises that that are happening around the country and that international adoption will most likely be, you know, offered up as a quote unquote solution. I think it's important for us to to really interrogate that. Absolutely. And I, in the process of reflecting on the history, I would try to imagine kind of 1980 when I was one year old. Um, so what information was the U.S. being mm-hmm. receiving? So you would have an occasional article by the New York Times, Washington Post. You have your ambassador on the ground who would take the airplane. Information is getting transmitted to Congress by faxes. Um, I think that there was a tremendous ability to control um, mm-hmm. the messaging around this. And and I, I wonder how that translates today, where we both have a completely different um, media environment, but also there are repressive regimes that can still be controlling the messaging around this. Um, I think that it's, 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 uh, but, you know, as you started, I I do believe that every child has the right to identity. And what I've Mm -hmm. come to understand is that that is a very important aspect of health. 
And it was not me who recognized this. It was Probuskera. Probuskera mm-hmm. said, we are here, we are fighting so that children can have the opportunity to reunite because of their right to identity. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and in the book, you talk about it's particularly in Angela's case, right? Because she, you've kind of followed her journey um, very in depth. Um, these questions of identity, right? These questions of, of family, these questions of, you know, who am I? Where do I belong? Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that identity piece, particularly for the disappeared children who were reunited and maybe some of the ways that they're thinking about themselves differently. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. I do feel, you know, I have a limited ability to answer that because identity is so personal. Mm-hmm. I did do 50 research interviews with families of young people who grew up in El Salvador. So they were not adopted transnationally. They grew up in orphanages or in informal adoptions in El Salvador. And a couple of them, the the change of reunion and feeling like they belong to a family um, actually gave them that sense of, of self-love and, and social connection that they left gangs. Um, mm. And that is very, wow. very important. Um, and I think it's a much under-discussed um, reason why we're seeing so much gang violence and so many young people in gangs. Um, I think for the transnational adoptees for Angela, I think I just saw her. um, We had a book launch event two weeks ago. I think that her own sense of identity is still evolving and and she's sharing it with her daughter um, Mm -hmm. as as they're cherishing their roots in El Salvador, but also kind of in a healthy way, setting boundaries um, around their, their life and, and their, um, and their family in the United States. So Mm -hmm. it's very complicated. I think for the transnational adoptees, just like on a sociological level, it's so important for us to, to reckon with the history of what happened with the Salvadoran civil war for them. This is their personal history. One of the things I had, um, a Mexican American first generation research assistant who helped me when we were analyzing the interviews and she pulled out this phrase, sangre ya blood calls blood. And Mm. we just kept hearing that over and over again. There is something about knowing for people, it seems. I mean, I'm not an an expert in in adoption literature and adoption, but knowing your biological family is out there and to know your roots and your own personal story seems to be very important. Um, Mm. Culturally, spiritually, El Salvador and the Salvadoran people is a very wealthy nation, um, yet very impoverished. And so Mm -hmm. that it it makes this um, tragic, jolting disconnect um, as as young people are reunited and put me as this Cuban American gringa in the Mm -hmm. middle of actually translating during reunions. Um, I think something else that's also relevant is the age of the separation. Mm -hmm. So some people were separated as babies. Um, So the only identity they consciously knew Um, even though a lot of imprinting probably does happen in the womb and in those first days, but the only identity they were aware of was their U.S. or French identity. Um, Others, there's somebody portrayed in Reunion who separated at age seven, and she said, I remember everything. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I I mean, I read a child development textbook. I read Eric Erickson's theories on identity formation before I went there. I don't have the answers, Mm -hmm. but what I can tell you as a pediatrician is that this is a very, very important part of children's health and development. 
-hmm. And it really has implications. You could see it in their parenting um, Mm -hmm. and it likely has implications for their entire lives. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Well, we're going to take another quick break. I'm Sana and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana and we're here this morning with Dr. Elizabeth Barnard, the author of Reunion, Finding the Disappeared Children of El Salvador. Now, Liz, of course, when you were working with ProBuscada, that was, you know, over a decade ago. And I'm wondering if you could give us some information on what ProBuscada is doing now and even ways that maybe if you're still involved or ways that we could get involved. Sure. So ProBuscada is still looking for the disappeared children. Um, They were disappeared in the early 80s. So they're about my age. And um, they're still facilitating reunion. So you mentioned the numbers that to date ProBuscada has reconnected 463 kids, but 570 cases remain unresolved. Um, mm-hmm. And the the parent generation, they're aging. Yeah. And so right now, UC Berkeley Human Rights Center is working with ProBuscada on a push to get more DNA samples from mothers. Um, mm-hmm. In particular, they're saying that that is a gap that is in the database. Um, one of the most inspiring parts of working with ProBuscada is that we did come from the north to the south to help build the DNA bank, but mm-hmm. then ProBuscada now actually runs the DNA bank on their ah, own. So okay. it's still going. There's, um, if you are listening and you feel like you, if that you might be connected to this, that you were adopted from El Salvador in the 1980s. I encourage you to contact the UC Berkeley Human Rights Center. You can email me. My address is online through the UCLA website, um, or you can contact ProBuscada directly. There's no charge, and it's and you know you will have complete choice in the matter. Um, so that is the the core part of what ProBuscada is doing. But they're still organizing. They're still pushing human rights cases. They have. Um, um, they have a very active Facebook page. They're doing workshops for the families to to keep the historical memory alive. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that really moved me about ProBuscada is that there was a, a psychologist, um, you know, as part of the organization. So someone who could offer that ongoing support. And I, I really appreciated that knowing knowing the intentionality around ProBuscada having you know this range of folks um, in their organization because that process of reunion it doesn't just end when you meet somebody right there's still all of these different you know feelings and emotions and thoughts that you need to process um, so that really heartened me to know the extensiveness of what was being offered through the organization yeah and we had a book launch event in Los Angeles. Um, two weeks ago when Angela came to it, it was wonderful to sit next to her. And one of the things she said to the audience was, ProBuscada has become my family. So when she goes to El Salvador, that's where she, she also does connect with her biological family there still, but they are still supporting people. It's it's a network wow. that extends through El Salvador and, and internationally. Mm. Oh, that's so wonderful to hear. Now, I know you end the book with giving us some insights and connections to, you know, what you have learned, um, 
here in the El Salvadoran case, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit as we were talking earlier, but also what you've learned through your work with Probuscada. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about that because, as you mentioned, of course, here in the U.S., uh, we have experienced border separation or we have enforced border separation. Um, and I can remember distinctly when that policy went into practice. And my first thoughts, of course, were, OK, what is going to happen to these children? These are going to be children who are going to be you know, adopted into U.S. families as if this was the only option, which it wasn't, um, you know, and how will these children be supported? And even you mentioned, of course, you know, now in Ukraine and thinking about, you know, children being separate, forcibly separated. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about um, some of the, the ways that we can take what we know and actually do something differently, um, both here in the U.S., but even thinking, you know, around the globe as well. Absolutely. So I think the two most important implications of this work, um, it's very simple, but it, it is really important to prevent separations whenever possible. Mm -hmm. And and that needs to be done with the best interests of the child. So if a child is unsafe in their home, or if the child is unsafe in their home country, no, we don't want to block the separation. But on a structural level, Probuscada is an outlier, but we need to create the conditions where families can stay together and families can be healthy and being together. So mm -hmm. that is that really needs to be the guiding principle in our policy making, in the programs and how we support families on the ground. Um, and then I think the other aspect is what Probuscada learned so beautifully because they were composed of the families themselves mm -hmm. is, is um, as everyone's listening, I'm sure it's now become clear is that people need support with reunification. I actually, I had a big kind of wake up moment um, in 2018, when the Trump administration was forcibly separating families, the media started reaching out to me because there was such little literature on the long-term impacts mm. of separation and reunification on children's health and well-being. Um, and I got contacted um, to speak on, a, it seemed like they were sort of a, a right-wing media source, that, and there was um, a video of a reunion between a mother from Central America and her, her biological son who looked like he was about preschool age. Mm -hmm. um, and the angle that they wanted me to comment on was, can you tell us that this reunion isn't real? Because you don't see the, the child running into his mother's mm -hmm. arms as one might expect. Mm -hmm. And I did not take them up on that. I did not talk to them, but that really alarmed right. me that that kind of request was out there. And so I think what's most important is that we understand this, how reunion, that, that moment of re-meeting, how there's those range of responses and how reunification happens on a continuum. And that it's so key to give families, this is where the book starts with Father John asserting the mission, the opportunity for reunion, be that through DNA, be that through proper tracking of them, if we're going to tear families apart, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and then that we support families through the reunification process. And as you were saying, family can mean a lot of things. I think this concept of transnational families is very important too. Um, and family does not necessarily mean biological child, biological mother, biological father. So mm -hmm. we need to support families in reunification. We need to prevent families from being torn apart. 
Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. And and also for that reminder that family looks a lot of different ways. And I think that's something else that really comes through in the book. You know, they're, you know, of course, family by blood and then family who raised you or family by love and then family of the people who are are fighting for something, you know, together, um, which I see very much uh, portrayed in the folks involved in Probuscada, in the folks who've been working for years and years, right, to help help reunite and help find and make those matches. Um, and I see those as, as types of family, um, it, which reminds me, even in the book, there are, are, are a lot of different opinions about what family is and the importance of, as you mentioned, um, blood calls blood, right? Um, and, and that really intrigued me as well. Some of the different comments from folks around how they were thinking about family um, and, and what types of family they were looking for and hoping to create. And so I'm wondering for you, um, how has your work or has your work changed or expanded your own ideas of of family? Oh, that's a a very good question. I, I I think I'm still working on reintegrating, um, to use that term from the reunification literature, what I learned in El Salvador Mm -hmm. with my frontline clinical practice. So my clinical work is at juvenile hall. I have seen kids who crossed the border from El Salvador as an unaccompanied minor. And, and it's, um, it's, it's hard to put together, like having such a deep knowledge of the history and the reunification process. I also, um, UCLA was, um, providing care in the emergency shelters, um, I think two summers ago when there was this huge overflow. And so we were seeing many, 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 I mean, everybody there was a young adult who was an an unaccompanied minor and every single one of them was like, oh gosh, Mm -hmm. I wish I could tell everybody and tell you what I understand about what you're going through in your home country. I don't know. I think what you're really pointing to is the gap is mm-hmm. how do we take this this deep knowledge of family, this deep knowledge of the forces that drive separation, this deep knowledge of, of what humans are going through. And that's what I'm actually pushing myself to work on um, is, is how can I operationalize what I've learned from El Salvador to apply it you know, to the Korean War or, or in advance to the children in Ukraine. And so their mm-hmm. their separations are never happen or as short as possible. Um, in terms of my own concepts of family, I, I don't really have a clear answer. All I can say is I love your term families by love. I think that that is, is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Liz. I, I cannot say, you know, enough good things about this book. Um, absolutely beautifully written, um, you know, about a very difficult topic, but something that is very real and that we have to face in order to understand and in order to make some changes in the best interest of, of family. So thank you so much. And thank you so much for spending time with us this morning. You're welcome. It's my honor. Thank you again to Dr. Elizabeth Barnard, the author of Reunion, Finding the Disappeared Children of El Salvador. Of course, as you could tell, I absolutely loved this book. Yes, it talks about a very difficult topic, talking about the civil war in El Salvador that led to the separation of thousands of children and families, but it does so in a way that really gives you an understanding of the many different policies and practices that led to both the civil war also led to the adoption out of many of these children, but 
also, most importantly, gives you this great overview of ProBuscada and all of the great work that they are doing in order to reunite children and families, or at least give children and families the opportunity to reunite. Well, for today's positive note, I actually want to leave you with a quote that's from the foreword of this book that says, not telling a truth because it is too uncomfortable is not responsible. And when I read that quote in the foreword of Reunion, it really captured me because there's so many difficult truths, uncomfortable truths, embarrassing truths that we have to confront and that we have to give voice to in order for us to move forward forward and to create a more just future for us all. Not telling a truth because it is too uncomfortable is not responsible. The positive part of this quote is that we are able to take responsibility and to have the courage to to tell a truth. And I think that is what Dr. Elizabeth Barnard has done in her beautifully written book, Reunion, Finding the Disappeared Children of El Salvador. Well, this has been Let's Grab Coffee on WAGSR 91.7 FM. In case you missed any part of this conversation, don't worry. Listen to the replay on WYXR.org on Let's Grab Coffee show page, or you can subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format wherever you stream podcasts. That way you can listen to this episode again. You can also send it to a friend. I can't wait for you to be back here with me next Monday morning.